This evening I'd like to reflect on the theme of refuge. And I'd like to begin with a poem some of you might be familiar with by Mary Oliver called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness, to send up the first signal, a white fan, streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solitaries, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upwards, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretch forward to listen, even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air. I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Uh, In this particular teaching tradition, uh, taking or finding or understanding what refuge is, it seemed to be very central to the path of awakening, to really understand what it means to be a light unto ourselves, to find inwardly an unshakable grace and confidence and trust, that we can rest in. In this particular tradition, for sure around the world on a daily basis, thousands and tens of thousands of people in monasteries alone, together with others, sitting on meditation cushions, chant what are called the three great refuges, where people... Say, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dhamma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And those, that taking of refuge is, is a, it's, it's not an empty ritual, it's, it's meant to be a manifestation of intention, a renewal of intention, a manifestation of sincerity and commitment and aspiration. And those refuges, of course, are also the first three bodhisattva precepts in the path of compassion. Now, in many ways, in this world, taking refuge is is considered to be something very ordinary, very simple, very natural. And yet, when it lives really in the forefront of our awareness, it's a powerful reminder, I think, of of what we are doing here, about what really is at the heart of the path. In Pali, the language in which the earliest Buddha's scriptures, suttas, were recorded, the refuges are buddham saranam gachami, 
damang saranam gachami and sangam saranam gachami. Now, saranam, saranam, this word that's repeated, it refers to sanctuary, protection, a place of shelter. It has intimations of peace, of safety within that word. And gachami comes from the, the Pali verb gamana, which is the act of returning, the sense of coming back to. So it's really important, I think, to, to see this not as a ritual, not as a sort of commandment, um, but to understand what is really happening in this taking of refuge. To take refuge in the Buddha is not about the extolling of just a historical figure who surely looked nothing like this, by the way. (laughs) But taking refuge in the Buddha is, is the placing of our trust, our heart, in awakening, in our own capacity for awakening. Taking refuge in the Buddha is not just about following in the footsteps of a historical Buddha, but to see and to know for ourselves actually what Siddhartha saw and knew for himself, what all women and men in this tradition have seen through the ages, to come to know for ourselves as a genuine possibility an unshakable freedom of heart that not just Siddhartha realized, but that all mystics, all yoginis through time and all traditions have come to realize. And in this sense of taking refuge in the Buddha, for it to be something very alive, it's a sense, an act of returning and trusting, not just once, but perhaps a thousand times in a single day or in a single hour, returning to what is true, returning to what is free, rather than being lost in confusion or delusion, deluded ideas about ourselves and about the world. One of the early Chan nuns, she wrote a few verses, a few lines. She says, a single meditation cushion and one is completely protected. Earth Earth may crumble, heaven collapse, but here one is at peace. Sacred titles and worldly fame both fade away in the sitting. And the whole universe assembles on the tip of a feather. Taking refuge in the Dharma is really to place our heart, to place our trust in the teaching, in the very path of awakening. And this is something that is manifested. It's not just an idea that each time we cultivate our capacity to be present, rather than following the avenues of being lost, each time we remember to return from fantasy or from struggle, 
In those moments, we are, in truth, taking refuge in the Dhamma. We're taking refuge in the path. I think each time that we can remember the possibility of embodying kindness and compassion rather than ill will, we're taking refuge in the Dhamma, in the path. Each time we, we value mindfulness and wakefulness and know that we can return from habit and agitation and preoccupation, we take refuge in the path, in the Dharma. And I think all of the moments, all of the moments when we can find the courage to, to meet life as it is, rather than flee from it. When we remember to return, to see and understand what is, rather than searching for what may be or should be, all of these small moments in a day are all the ways in which we take refuge in the path of awakening rather than taking refuge in some of the old and familiar habits and delusions of a lifetime. When we discover or rediscover that the intelligent awareness that can embrace the simple truths of every moment, that which is lovely, that which is unlovely, rather than being lost, in some kind of fantasized self that is always leaning on attachments and shoulds. This is taking refuge in the path of awakening. It is actually a process of practicing awakening. It's a process of practicing liberation. To take refuge in the Sangha, traditionally this means taking refuge in the the community, the Sangha of awakened, liberated beings. But I think there's another level in this which speaks to our own sense of connectedness. If you notice the moments when we find that willingness in ourselves to step out of the the fires of likes and dislikes, of separating the world into friends and enemies, and really come to realize how deeply we, I depend on you, that you depend on everyone around you, and that everyone depends on you. When we step out of our likes and dislikes and divisions and see how our lives are intertwined on every level in suffering and in joy, in hatred and in love, Sangha actually translates as harmony. Communities, relationships that are rooted in kindness, uh, kindness and in ethics. I think so many of us see in this life, you know, how in very profound ways we are actually alone. And yet we're always alone with others. 
And our interdependence, the very nature of our interdependence, asks us to take refuge in integrity and respect and concern and care. There's a wonderful saying in in this tradition that says, wherever my eyes may fall, may my gaze be honest and filled with compassion. I think refuge, or really nurturing this sense of place or place of safety and peace, and the commitment to it, is at its most essential level a relinquishment of the tendency to flee. It it is really an invitation to discover for ourselves what it means to be fearless and upright in our lives with the, the willingness to unconditionally embrace everything. The wild and the chaotic thoughts, the sunbeams on the grass, the the lovely and the difficult people, the lovely and the difficult emotions, in the most critical, challenging times of our lives, when we are faced with loss, with difficult changes, with illness, with death, nothing can serve us so well as to understand deeply what it means to be a refuge to ourselves. To know in our hearts a place of peace and safety. When our worlds crumble, and our worlds do crumble at times, and we really see that there is nothing in that moment that we can really lean lean upon or be able to fully rely upon, To know that inner refuge of poise and confidence and balance, quite honestly, I think, is the greatest of all blessings. Dogen, who was one of the most influential and brilliant teachers and scholars in Buddhist history, was also an exceptionally accomplished practitioner. And when he was dying... What did he do? Where did he go in his practice? He didn't endeavor to go into blissful states of concentration or stillness. He he didn't endeavor to use his vast meditative skills to somehow transcend and find some out-of-body states. What he did instead, as the story goes, was to transcribe onto a long piece of paper, the words Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and hung them on a pillar in his sick room. And whenever it said he could find the strength to get out of his bed, he would walk around this pillar, repeating the refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. I think this capacity to find and nurture in our own heart this fearless freedom, this place of safety and and peace is not only for our own benefit, but this inner confidence and refuge is also what enables us to offer refuge to others. When we think of the most terrible times in human history in recent times, 
when there has been terrible times of oppression and genocide and injustice, it has so often been the fearlessness and the courage of just handfuls of people who have meant the difference between life and death of so many. When you think even in our cultures today, just how important it is that there are, you know, and we use the word refuges for women and children, you know, fleeing from domestic violence and danger, the place to rely upon, the place that can be offered. And the world actually needs this kind of courage. And the way in which this kind, this, this capacity to offer refuge is so much part of the fabric of compassion. Shantideva, one of the great poets of compassion, he wrote in, in speaking about this, he wrote, he said, may I be a friend to those who have no friends, a protector to have those who have no protection, a guide to those who are lost, an island to those who are adrift. I think, I imagine it's evident to all of us that our capacity to be able to offer refuge to another, to be able to have the inner courage to embrace the amount of suffering and pain there is in our world is so clearly and directly linked to our capacity to know in ourselves those depths of steadiness and confidence and trust and to be able to be a refuge for ourselves. My sense that the initial motivation for many of us to begin to explore this path, a meditative path, a spiritual path. I think for many of us, it's, it's a curious but also quite an important blend of both disappointment and insight. It's probably evident in our own stories, our own histories and experience, that when we do not have confidence in our own hearts and minds, when we don't have the confidence that our own hearts and minds can truly be a place of safety for us, a refuge for us, we tend to seek refuge elsewhere, outside of ourselves. Sometimes this is skillful, And sometimes it's not so skillful. That we may find ourselves looking for someone or something that we can lean on. Hoping that they can deliver the the peace and the safety that we may feel to be lacking in ourselves. We see at times the encouragement and indeed the endeavor in our world to try and find refuge in in status, in identity, in possessions, or searching the very corners of the world to find the one single person who will be the island for us, the rock that we can stand on. We probably see in our own experience when we feel that we can't bear 
the essential uncertainty of life, we may try to find refuge in control, in habits. Sometimes in our culture, people even find themselves trying to find refuge in food or drugs or fantasy or craving. There's a recent research study done, you know how many of these research studies are done, but there's a recent research study done, and I rather might, it says the average person spends 49% of their time something somewhere other than where they are. I thought this was incredibly optimistic. <laughs> I thought, only 49%? But I think it's a really interesting question to bring into our days here and to bring into our practice here. Where do we go when we're not here? Where do we go when we're not here? Where do we go when we're not wholeheartedly present in our body, our mind, our life and everything that is brought to us? What is it that consciously or unconsciously we find ourselves seeking for in fantasy or busyness or, or the endless, endless strategies to arrange our world, rearrange our world? What's going on in our minds when we find ourselves trying to convince ourselves that we're actually going to be, there's much more happiness, you know, out in the woods than there here is here on this meditation cushion? To really have a sense of this, where do we leave? Where do we lean? Now, sometimes the motivation, I have to say, for many of this searching for refuge, for somewhere to lean, sometimes the motivation for that, you know, is, is quite wholesome. In some ways, it's quite timeless and enduring because we're actually looking for a place where we can rest. We're actually looking for somewhere where there's a sense of ease. We're looking for refuge. The delusion is, the unskillful part is, the delusion is that we project this sense of refuge outside of ourselves. There's no blame, no judgment in this. Because, you know, I think throughout our lives we see how much we've been sort of exposed to something of a, a collective and a cultural delusion that promotes leaning and promotes fleeing. It's kind of what we grow up with. The promotion of leaning and fleeing from what is. You know, I don't know what kind of fairy tales you listened to when you were a young girl, but I know the ones that I listened to. You know, and it's somewhere else. You know, safety is somewhere else. Rescue is somewhere else. You know, identity status is somewhere else. And how much within many, many of these cultural and collective delusions, there's actually a promotion of a kind of insufficiency, sense of insufficiency and lack. You know, we need to be more, apparently. We need to become more. We need to have more. We need to have more status. We need to have more money. We need to have a different body. We need to have the perfect partner. We need to earn. 
earn refuge through striving and pleasing and forcing. And then the promise is you'll be able to rest. The Buddha raised his head and he looked into the eyes of that frightened crowd. Why were they frightened? Why were they frightened? We could say that the teaching of the Buddha is a shattering of many of those delusions. The delusion of seeking refuge outside of ourself out of fear that it can't be found inwardly. Perhaps the crowd was frightened because in the Buddha dying, the sense of the loss of all that they had lent on. But what was the Buddha's last teaching? Be a light. Be an island unto yourself. Take refuge in your own capacity to find unshakable inner freedom, a receptive heart. The Buddha was no stranger to disappointment. He had experienced in his life many of the same disappointments that we experience in our lives. That the world of conditions, that is what this our world is, is a world of conditions. That this world of conditions is something that cannot be grasped, cannot be mastered, cannot be controlled. That this world of conditions is a world, I fear, that is essentially unstable, unpredictable and changing. And in that, intrinsically incapable of offering the satisfaction that we hope for in terms of certainty and safety and reliability. In reality, this world of shifting conditions is intrinsically incapable of providing us with enduring happiness and peace. It's not wrong, it's not bad, but when we look life in the eye, we see this is just simply the way it is. It's just simply the way it is. We know this. On one level, I'm sure we all know this. This is not news. But part of us just does not want to know it. Just does not want to know it. Because the knowing of it would not only perhaps feel disappointing, but frightening if this is true. Where can we turn for refuge? It's not about disconnecting from the world, not about disconnecting from life, but it is a truth, I think, a simple truth that really invites us to turn inwardly. It can be frightening, I think, for many of us to fully embrace the truth that anyone and anything that we have lent upon in the past or that we lean upon in the present, or that we might want to lean upon in the future, is bound, with this intrinsic, bound within this intrinsic reality of instability and change, and at times crumbling. It's not a statement that promotes disconnection. We will, I think, all of us have times in our lives when our hearts are broken, when we feel lost, And those are the moments when we will feel deeply supported by the refuge offered to us by others. It will be true of all of us that to be able to receive that compassion, to be able to 
take shelter in the refuge offered to us is as important as being able to offer refuge to another or to ourselves. But no one, I think, in the end, we know this, no one in the end, no matter how much they care for us, no matter how much support we are offered, that no one else can, in the end, truly heal whatever pain we might carry, find for us the way to freedom, deliver to us the happiness and the peace that we long for. Disappointment, I think, is a powerful teacher for us. You know, we may or may not have people who love us or hate us. We may or may not in our lives get lots of praise or lots of blame. We may or may not in this retreat have wonderful concentration and amazing meditation experiences. Because all of this, so in some real way, it's just all of this is, is part of the fabric of the world of conditions. But what actually we, are, we hear in this teaching is that this world of conditions actually, with all that it holds, never held the intrinsic power to shatter our hearts or to deliver lasting peace or happiness. I think for some... For some people, this this disappointment is often felt to be quite crushing and can even be the forerunner of despair or depression or hopelessness. Yet when disappointment, I I feel, is, is married to insight, that disappointment is the very first step on this journey and this path, just as it was for Siddhartha. Siddhartha was a very disappointed young man some ways. All that he had, his status, position, safety, he came to see didn't offer to him that lasting happiness, that lasting refuge that he really sought for. But somehow, instead of that disappointment turning into depression, it actually turned into inspiration. Where then would everything that he sought for really be found. When we really understand disappointment, I think it's actually a moment when we, in many ways, stop fleeing. It's the moment, for many of us, when we stop busying ourselves, endlessly rearranging, trying to rearrange the world of conditions, and begin, maybe, to be wholeheartedly present begin to cultivate our own potential for peace, contentment of our own hearts. I would imagine that all of us have had a taste of happiness, a taste of joy, a taste of equanimity, a taste of compassion, no matter how brief those tastes are. This path is reminding us again and again that the loveliness of joy and happiness and peace are inwardly born. They are inwardly generated. That is why so, so, it's why actually we do what we're doing here. You know, it's why so much emphasis is actually placed in this teaching upon the meditative training and deepening and development, not because, you know, it's, it's not about becoming something 
but it's actually coming to see so clearly and unarguably for ourselves and that inwardly generated sufficiency and happiness and peace. It totally changes our relationship to life. It's the moment when we stop seeking outwardly what we feel to be lacking inwardly and know how inwardly born those qualities are. It's really, you know, when we talk about being present, it's, <coughs> it's, you know, I know in our culture it's turned into something of a kind of cliche, hasn't it? You know, just be present. You know? it, it, but but it, it's, it's not meant to be a cliche. It's not meant to be a kind of mantra. You know, there's something that we're doing here within the development of mindfulness, which has a remarkable intelligence to it. The being wholeheartedly present is also being unconditionally present, and think about what that means. Can we welcome the sound, the song of a bird, and the pain in our knee with the same open-heartedness? Can we welcome the thoughts of worthiness and the thoughts of unworthiness with the same unconditional wholeheartedness? Can we even welcome the desire to flee as well as the intention to be present? Being wholeheartedly present, in my understanding, means being mindful of what we are taking refuge in moment to moment where we are making our home moment to moment. What's really interesting to see, and I think really useful to see, is that we are always practicing something. It doesn't matter whether we're standing, or whether we're sitting, or whether we're walking, or whether we're lying down, whether we're still, or whether we're moving, whether we're speaking or silent, we are always practicing something. And it's really useful for us to ask of ourselves, what it is that we are practicing in the moment. Because if we are not practicing wakefulness, which tends to be an intentional practice, there is some likelihood that we may actually be more unconsciously practicing some of the tired old habits and patterns of a lifetime. But just to acknowledge there is never a moment when we are not practicing something. What are we taking refuge in? Is it a refuge that is authentic in its capacity to really uh, offer a sense of confidence and fearlessness? Or is it something of a false refuge that only furthers confusion and agitation Sometimes one of the places where we might find ourselves taking refuge more habitually is, is in the world of belief. All the ideas about who we think or believe ourselves to be. You know, listen to your inner, your inner critics sometimes. You know, listen to that voice inwardly that, you know, says I'm lovable or not, I'm aversive, I'm agitated, I'm you know, anxious, I'm inadequate. How do we know we're taking refuge in something which is kind of a false refuge? 
because it reeks of unhappiness. <laughs> and it reeks of limitation. And it is founded upon a historical story and not something that is actually present. And it grows. That's the amazing thing. You know, whatever we practice is going to grow. That's kind of a big thought. So if we practice, you know, our beliefs grow stronger when we practice them. They become who we are. I become who I believe myself to be. Sometimes we take refuge not so much in beliefs. We might take refuge in in emotions or mental states. And here, too, what we practice grows. That's something. And I think this must be one of those universal laws. You know, if you uh, practice restlessness, guess what happens? Gets more restless. You know, if you practice agitation, pretty much the same, become more agitated. If we practice obsessing, well, we get better at it. And, you know, it just becomes a habit. You know, if we practice fantasy, it's where we go. This also works with other things, too. If we practice mindfulness, it also deepens. If we practice calmness and stillness, this too grows. If we practice kindness and compassion, this too grows just like any plant, any seed that is watered. Sometimes what we take refuge from in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, sometimes we're taking refuge from the habits of our own minds, our own hearts that really no longer serve us well. And taking refuge in those moments, I think, is, is a commitment we make to our own capacity rather than to incapacity. The capacity to deepen the seeds that really do lie within our own hearts. Again, one of the Chan nuns, she wrote, The blue lotus spontaneously emerges from the drift of the mire. If you bring to everything an illumined mind, you won't get lost. I send word to those who study to always keep firmly in mind that which is originally pure is none other than wisdom itself. You've probably already noticed that we we talk a lot about awakening, and I think sometimes it's this really word that's kind of shrouded in the mist, you know. We talk about awakening in many, many different ways, both as the fruition of this path, but we also talk about it not so always with a capital A, but with a small a. The Buddha's understanding of freedom as he described it was an understanding of a freedom that was already present within himself, hidden beneath layers of confusion and delusion. The Buddha didn't talk about entering some transcendent domain or place. He said he just saw so clearly and deeply and profoundly things as they actually are. 
And what was really let go of and relinquished was the camouflage of false views born of conflict and confusion that caused suffering and struggle. In that awakening, he didn't deny the world, but what happened was a transformation of the way that he saw the world. He changed his heart, changed his mind, changed his view, and in that saw the end of suffering. And when, when the Buddha was asked by a, by a sort of admiring follower, what are you? He just answered, I'm awake. I'm awake. And this was his refuge, something, a quality of wakefulness, alive, fluid, receptive, and free from clinging and suffering. These two are intrinsically underwoven. We practice being awake and we practice non-clinging. We discover a refuge not in the passing objects of consciousness, but in, in the seeing, in the knowing. We practice integrity and calmness and mindfulness, and we take refuge in the path, and it does become our home. And we forget, and we practice again. Forgetfulness is actually where we practice. It's good to remember that. Forgetfulness is where we practice. Countless moments of taking refuge. Countless moments of returning. Again, one of the Chan nuns, she says, a nun who has self-possession and integrity will find the peace that nourishes and leaves no lack. A nun who has self-possession and integrity will find the peace that nourishes and leaves no lack. We take refuge in Sangha and community and harmony, knowing that we really in our world cannot afford to do otherwise. And here, you know, you think about it here. Here we learn the lessons of patience with ourselves and others. We learn the lessons of tolerance and generosity and forgiveness of ourselves and others. We learn the lessons of kindness and compassion for ourselves and others. And think about it in retreat, how many times are we asked to learn these lessons, to take refuge in them, knowing them also to be a refuge for others. A friend of mine even said, we don't achieve awakening for ourselves. We only can participate in the awakening of the world. To understand Refuge is not about aligning ourselves with a view. It's not about becoming some kind of Buddhist. It's about a life of sincerity, a life of commitment, a life of wakefulness. So Buddha once said, he says, this noble life we live does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit or its goal or the attainment of virtue or concentration as its benefit or its goal. It is the unshakable liberation of the heart that is the goal of this noble life, its heartwood and its end. If we take just a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.